0: My name is Carlton Reeve and I'm your host this afternoon in a session that's been produced by Tom Kenyon and Becky Palmer. Um, Some of us were talking earlier about uh, educational media and recognising that it goes in cycles. I think we're on our third wave of educational media. Uh, Some of you may remember uh, the last wave which peaked, dare I say, with BBC Jam and then suffered a fairly catastrophic crash afterwards but is now resurgent again uh, in the form of apps. And I'm delighted to introduce our panel to you today, Um, starting with Professor Jackie Marsh at the end, your left. Uh, Jackie is the Professor of Education at Sheffield uh, University. Next to me is Justin Smith, who runs the educational app store. Uh, On this side of me, uh, we have Josh Davidson, who runs Night Zookeeper, uh, a transmedia storytelling app. And finally, at the end, we have Ben Courtney, who is a games designer from Preloaded. Just so that we have a sense of uh, of who we're talking to, I'm assuming that most of you either produce, commission, or make educational content in one form or another. But I'd also like to get a sense of um, who of you, if you could just raise your hand, has a parent with school-aged children. Could you just raise your hand so we have a sense of that? Okay, that's great. So about 70, 80% of you. Um, and are there any kind of teachers or educators amongst us? Okay, so a handful of you as well. Thank you, that's, that's great so that we've got, a, got the perspective that we need to address you correctly. So I'm gonna stop talking and I'm gonna hand over to Jackie. Each of our, each of our panelists are gonna talk for about 10 minutes and then at the end we'll have 10 minutes for questions. Um, as Jackie goes to the podium, I'd just uh, like to thank BAFTA who have sponsored tonight's session, and I am told that entries are still, um, it's still possible to enter the BAFTA um, Children's Awards, Uh, and there is a category for learning apps. Um, Apparently, if you go to BAFTA.org, you can find all of the entry details there. Uh, So thank you, BAFTA, for organising and sponsoring this afternoon's event. Jackie, over to you.
1: Well, First of all, thank you very much for the invitation to talk this evening. Um, I said to Carlton at the beginning, I think I'd have to stand to the side of the podium, otherwise none of you would be able to see me, I'm sure. Uh, I can't see over the top of it. Um, So, we thought I'd speak first, because what I want to do is give an overview of preschoolers' use of tablets um, in the home. This was a study funded by the ESRC, and it had a number of partners, so myself and Dylan Yamada Rice from the University of Sheffield, Lydia Plowman, who's here today from the University of Edinburgh, CB Biz, uh, Dubit, um, Andrew Davenport's new company, Foundling Bird, and Montini Primary School, which is in Sheffield. So it was a very interesting project because of that partnership, the academic, the industry, and the teacher uh, collaboration around what is a you know, very important topic. This study had a number of stages, so in the first stage we undertook an online survey of 2,000 parents of children aged from 0 to 5 who had access to um, tablets in the home, so that's important to remember as you see the data. The second stage of the study, we looked at six of um, the children in greater depth, so undertook case studies in their homes. In the third part of the study, we took the top ten apps, uh, the favourite apps of uh, young children, and filmed children using them in the school, and then analysed them in terms of how they promoted playing creativity. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the survey data, and then a little bit about um, what came out of that coding today. So um, you'll see here that um, ownership of devices actually was surprisingly high for us. Uh, Andrew Davenport, he um, wrote Teletubbies and In the Night Garden, he commented at a recent meeting we had that you know, when he was a child it would be very unusual for children of that age to own something that cost as much as um, tablets cost. Um, so just bear that in mind as you see some of those figures and also the gender difference is interesting there in terms of ownership and whether that's because we know gaming is driving um, children's Use of the tablets in the early years, um, and because of you know gender interest in, in uh, gaming being set you know quite early on. In terms of access, you see here that iPads were the most popular tablet accessed by um, the under fives, with Samsung Galaxy second, and. Um, in terms of socioeconomic status, there was a distinct pattern there, so that more middle-class children had access to iPads uh, than children from working-class families. And, of course, that's got complex um, repercussions when children go to early-year settings and schools where they might meet you know, tablets of a different order than they are used to. You'll see here the amount of tablet use reported by the parents. Now, obviously, when parents are reporting um, use, it might underestimate or overestimate... Uh, And you might think that's high, but obviously what we found is children actually, um, there's convergence going on here, so they're watching television through the tablet, they're playing games through the tablet, so some of the hours reported on some of those different media previously will now be reported all through the use of um, the tablet. We also looked at the pattern across the weekday, and no surprises here, so here it's split into um, two sets of data, one for under threes, the blue line, and the orange line for the um, three to fives, and you'll see the peak around tea time, that's when often parents are making tea and the children are using the tablets generally unsupervised in, in some cases. Um, And the more even sort of pattern across the under threes, um, which you might expect because, you know, children uh, three to five may be going to preschools. At the weekend, though, we see a more even pattern uh, of use across the day. We looked at a day in the life, a typical day in the life of um, under threes. And you can see from this that um, the types of apps used on the tablets varied across the day. But generally during the daytime, both in the weekend and at the weekend, um, young children were using them for playing creativity purposes. And then um, parents using them for bedtime stories and nurseries, uh, you know, from six o'clock onwards. That changes a little bit with the three to five year olds where we see more educational use uh, of the apps during the day. And then by the time they get to bedtime, um, they are actually watching videos quite often, YouTube uh, and so on. So less frequent use of uh, the tablets for bedtime stories, although it still goes on in some of the families. I should say that all of this data, I hope you've managed to pick up a booklet we have outside. Um, This one because all of the data uh, is reported uh, in this booklet. Um, you can see here we also asked parents to try and estimate their children's competence using the tablet. And we have a whole range of questions about, you know, whether children could tap and, and so on. So 65% of these under 5s were able to swipe um, the screen. And actually almost half able to use um, learning apps independently, although it depends on the type of app, as we'll see um, when I move on to, that, to look at that data. We asked about what were the influences on children's downloading of apps... Um, And you can see the sort of range here. I suppose what surprised me uh, here was the 44% of children who do um, go to apps through um, in-app advertising. Um, given the problematic nature of children's use of apps that have in-app advertising, as I'll talk about in a moment, uh, that seemed you know, a high figure to, uh, to me. But you can see siblings also um, have a very powerful influence. Um, and children with older siblings generally orientate themselves to um, apps that are older, that, you know, older than, uh, aimed at children that older than five. Parent motivations for buying apps were primarily around playing creativity and uh, learning. And that differed slightly amongst the um, under threes and the three to fives, as you can see here. But a, a wide variety of motivations for parents using apps. And then, little surprise here, but differences in the orientations of children and parents to apps. So parents said that their favourite apps were the ones that orientated towards education, whereas children report, they reported their children liking apps around sort of virtual worlds, play, creativity, and so on. So little surprise there. These were the top 10 apps for under fives in the survey, YouTube. Uh, close behind it was CBeebies. I think YouTube came out at about 18%, and, yeah. and CBeebies CB was about 16.9%. So some of these are age-appropriate apps, um, the Peppa Pig, the Disney, Boka, and some of them are apps obviously aimed at adults sometimes, or older children, Temple Run, um, Candy Crush, uh, and so on. So... Those apps are the ones that the um, children are wanting to aspire to because they can see their parents and older brothers and sisters uh, playing those games. But as we found when we observed them, they can't—they don't necessarily play them in the way that the game developers um, intended. So this is what we did in schools. We had a camera over the shoulder of children uh, and observed. Uh, over 15 hours of um, data was analysed. We analysed it in relation to types of play. So we used... Um, Uh, these types of play developed by Hughes we had to adapt them for a digital uh, environment uh, but you can see here a very wide range of types of play um, and also in terms of Robson's uh, notions of creative thinking as markers of creativity and that's because it's a very good tool for looking at creativity for preschoolers because you can judge it through observable behavior. And so what we did when we looked at the data was that we were able to identify those moments in which the apps promoted playing creativity and then analyse the features of those apps that closed down playing creativity. And you'll see here, I've just taken um, one feature from each of these, um, but we've got you know, a whole very wide range of criteria that are outlined in the booklet uh, but you'll see here, for example, tappable areas where they give, you know, little margin for error, so the children get very frustrated uh, when they were attempting to, you know, place a jigsaw, a piece of a jigsaw into the right place, but it, it wouldn't give them a very wide range of uh, thank you, uh, very large potential um, to miss that. Uh, In-app adverts, so um, these were very um, disruptive for the children and often they would never get back to the app itself, especially when they were the ones in the form of pop-ups. The banner in-apps were not quite as disruptive uh, to the play. In terms of the, the features that promoted play and creativity, obviously having a home icon on each screen really helped, because when the preschoolers then um, wanted to move out of that particular page, they could go to that, otherwise they'd have to go to the home button on the iPad, and then they never got back uh, into the app itself, and it disrupted the whole play and creativity. Um, and certainly in terms of the kinds of modelling that we saw. So the the app that came out best in terms of the kinds of scaffolding or support that's used um, for children was CBeeBiz, because it did things like uh, left um, some space for the children to respond. If the children didn't respond in the way required, then it would have a moving arrow uh, to prompt the child to swipe uh, the tablet and so on, whereas as you might imagine, um, Candy Crush did not come out very strongly in terms of the kinds of playing creativity that it promoted. It was generally trial and error. The children weren't trying to sort of use it with the logic that some of you who play Candy Crush uh, might use it. So you know, just to conclude really that um, app. At- design can foster playing creativity. Obviously it's how the children play and it's who they play with as some of our other speakers will talk about that is crucially important but app design itself is very important in scaffolding and supporting children's use through it. We also think that there's been little work thinking about the differential between one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds in app design. You know, saying it's age from three to five is actually not sufficient in some cases because there's a big difference between a three-year-old and a four-year-old in some areas of their development. And so what we've done in the booklet is um, prompted app designers to think about what are the needs of one-year-olds two-year-olds and three-year-olds. I'd be interested if any of you have feedback um, on that. You know, please email me um, You know, with responses to, to, to our work. So thank you very much, and I'd better stop there.
0: Oh, <laughs> Perfect timing. Thank you, Jackie. What a great uh, research base. And, and it's nice to be, to be reassured that there is research evidence to suggest that those pop-up ads aren't just deeply frustrating. They're also really uh, contrary to the learning experience. So Justin's going to. Oh, sorry, Josh. Yes, yes. yes. just going to talk to us now uh, about his transmedia uh, storytelling uh, app, Night Zookeeper. Thank you Thanks very Josh. much.
2: Hello, everybody. Wow, well, yeah, the light, the spotlight is quite strong. Um, so yes, I'm Josh Davidson, and I'm a full-time, fully-fledged night zookeeper, which means that I look after magical animals at night time. Um, it's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Um, so. What is Night Zookeeper and and why is it educational? Well, Night Zookeeper started as a story, like so many ideas that come to this conference. um, I had a story about a zookeeper that walks around a zoo at nighttime and discovers magical animals. And I had thought of spying giraffes and time-traveling elephants and all manner of strange beasts. But um, I realized when when I was creating this story that I wasn't the only one in the world that had come up with a magical animal. Of course, if you go into any children's bookshop, it's full of all of these creations. Um, And I thought maybe this is an opportunity for collaboration. So I had a very good friend, Paul Hudson, who I'd met at university, who was in a school. And when I told him this idea, he immediately saw the potential for Night Zookeeper to be used as a source of inspiration in the classroom. And I think that One of the reasons why we get so excited about apps and technology in school is because of that big word engagement and what it can do. But we shouldn't forget that one of the greatest tools in the classroom for engagement is is great storytelling and the stories that draw kids in to their world. And so that's what we've set out to do with Night Zookeeper. We went and did workshops across, uh, across the UK and schools across the UK. And we told all the kids that when we turned up in our Wellington boots and our Night Zookeeper hats that we looked after. A zoo full of magical animals. Um, it was a bit like Father Christmas. We would never destroy them. If we do look after animals and uh, that the children, if they created an animal, then we would see it in the zoo that night. Um, and it was an amazing experience whenever we ran that workshop in school. And what we've tried to do as a business is capture some of that magic in a digital product. So I'm going to show you a bit about what night Zookeeper looks like um, if you have another chance to play it. So this is a young man, it was me, uh, creating a magical animal, um, and this is how you do it. You start to draw and use your imagination. So many digital products provide restrictions around uh, character creation. Moshi was the classic example you picked from one of five various monsters that needed to represent you within that world. And what we've always felt with Night Zookeeper is that you should let children's imaginations run wild and create the strangest things that they could ever wish to create. So on the night zookeeper, they come on, and of course, they do a drawing. They then place their drawing into our world. Uh, This is a moon base, and you can resize it and put it where you want. And then you have to write a story about it. So you give your animal a name. In this case, it was the uh, uh, the Eric the Alien Bunny. Um, And having named Eric the Alien Bunny, um, I had a challenge to write a story about him. And you can see on our writing tool that we provide a word bank of words that we need to include in our story. There are objectives taken from the national curriculum to inspire kids to make sure that the writing that they're doing fulfills the expectations that their teachers will have based on what, uh, what level they are either uh, taken in from the U.S. and in, in the grade system there of the Common Core or from the U.K. national curriculum. And then there's helps and prompts throughout as they go. Um, the writing tool itself is adapted to be As user-friendly as possible for children, we knock back the writing of the sentence that they're currently, uh, that they're finished with and bring to the foreground the sentence that they're currently writing. The word bank words get stroked out as as they write them and that's an incredible motivator. But also the challenge changes, and not only do they end up writing a story about their animal, but we start to bring in their classmates' animals and see if they can include them in their story, objects, giving them massive inspiration to get them to continue writing. Um, if anyone's been in the classroom, some of the biggest challenge for a child who sits down to write a story is then they kind of run out of ideas of what they were going to write about and they're like, that's the end. It's like, is it the end? And you can sit and you talk to them a little bit about it and you'd say, well, maybe you could make this story um, evolve by introducing a new character or, or a, new, um, a new object or something that would excite them to get them to continue to writing. And of course in class that's very hard to scale because as a teacher you'd have to be running around or you'd have teaching assistants talking to the kids to continue to inspire them and give them ideas and that's something that we've been able to do with night zookeeper as a piece of technology provide that solution once you've written about your animal and he comes and lives in the zoo eric is now he is alive and he lives very happily on the moon Uh, eric the alien bunny but he doesn't just sit there he doesn't sit on his own He's annoying and he has, to, has a million questions of things that you need to do to care for him. You maybe have to write a letter um, to, uh, to the people on Earth to see if he can come down and visit them. Maybe you need to write a pirate story about a, an adventure that he went on uh, on the endless ocean within the night zoo. So we give you continued writing prompts and drawing prompts as you care for your animal. And you only have, you don't just have one animal. Night becomes a bit like an unwieldy Tamagotchi because not only do you create your animals and keep creating, and boy, do kids keep creating these animals once they're on a roll, but you can also collect your friends' animals. So you can collect your classmates' animals and start to collaborate and write stories. And of course, all of your stories are now involving all of the other kids in your classes' um, animals and you're creating this huge complex world of kids, you know, cross-referencing each other's stories and ideas. And it becomes a very exciting motivator for getting kids to continue to write when they go home. And that's the real key behind what Night Zookeeper is doing. It is trying to engage them. It is trying to do all those fantastic things that technology can do. But we think that we've created a platform that has genuine, accessible achievement um, around the children's work. So we have a teacher toolkit where everything that children write gets imported into your class toolkit. So your children are writing away. It's a bit, like you can see on the left-hand side of the, uh, the screen, that's your kind of your class full of little zookeepers. Every time they write, you get a sort of a classic Facebook-style notification saying they've got new work. And teachers can go in and see what they're doing as well as seeing class totals and checking progress. When they click into a child, they can see their latest stories, they can approve them, they can reward them, um, and they can, most importantly, assess them. So they can look at, again look at this piece of writing against a relevant uh, curriculum which they can dictate by whichever level the child is at, um, and make an assessment and start to to check off when when, when kids are doing good good writing. Um, They can also leave comments that encourage kids to continue to write, and then kids receive those comments within the game that they're playing. Now, there's a lot of writing going on, and that's one other thing that we've sort of gamified in terms of the, the, the experience. There's a night news platform where children's stories um, get published by their teacher and whenever a child has a story published onto the night news they get a certain number of points and that number of points is the number of words that they've been able to write and include in their story so we've been organizing writing competitions across across the world we've just launched a sydney writing league Um, we did something back in march called world creative writing month and had over a million words written so it's one of those experiences that really engages kids because they can look at the league table, they can see how well they're doing. And we had 53% of kids that were doing it in school go home and continue writing. And I think that's an indication of the power of technology if you can get it right. Um, As I say, going home, writing stories, drawing pictures, this is all good stuff. And it's why me and Paul started the company. We wanted to use technology to support creative types of play. And what we just heard from Jackie is something that you know, has, has driven us as a business quite strongly. We want to take Night Zookeeper and make sure that there is a place where kids with technology do have unlimited possibilities. They are writing their own stories. They're creating their own characters and they're drawing. Technology can enable you to do social media to do so much in connecting different kids. So having another child collect your animal is a huge social metric. And I think that we're only just beginning to explore the possibilities there. Um, two minutes. very good. So that's, that's what the Night Zookeeper platform is. That's what we're trying to grow as a business. We sell subscriptions to schools um, for year-long licenses to our platform. Um, but as I say, we started Night Zookeeper as a story. And what we've realized is that more we can bring the story to life, that reason why when we went into the school dressed as zookeepers, children got so excited, the more we can take that story and make it something that kids want to be a part of, the more engagement, the greater that experience will be. So I went to MIP Junior last year and I presented. We've begun a journey towards turning Night Zookeeper into a fully fledged children's brand. Uh, we've launched our first pure consumer play in Japan and it's been the top app in the last two months in the Japanese app store for the iPad. Um, and we've started working with Carrot Animation, some of you may know here in the UK, um, who makes Sarah and Duck, which is fantastic. So this is the first, I'm showing you exclusive of the work that we've been doing with Carrot. So this is um, a shot of the new Night Zookeeper Um, which we're going to be taking out and talking to the traditional children's media industry is a tantalizing sketch followed by a bit of the world that's going to be coming from our first piece of animation that we're creating with carrot and this is it this is the zookeeper himself brought to life i couldn't be more excited here he is little night zookeeper uh, in his zoo about to meet a million magical animals created by children around the world Um, so What's left for me to say is that we're going to be launching a a book at the end of the year. It'll be a digital book in the first instance, but there'll be print copies available. Uh, We want to take this platform and grow it as much as we can. Uh, Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Josh. Um, It's great, isn't it, to be reminded of those traditional skills in new formats. A lot of newcomers to app development kind of think it's an entirely new world, so it's great to be reminded Of the centrality of storytelling in these experiences. Um, Justin, over to you.
3: Well hello everyone, Um, I'm Justin Smith, uh, CEO and founder of the Educational App Store. I'm just going to, I've been asked to talk to you about why I set up the Educational App Store, that's more of a personal story. And then um, I'm going to talk about the the size of the app market globally, what's happening around educational apps, and the criteria we use for assessing apps at the store. And then a little bit of um, forward thinking in regards to growth areas and points of interest that we've noted since we've been in this space. So um, let's uh, see what we've got here. So just to give you a little idea about why I started the app store. Uh, This was me, not actually me, as you can see I'm too old to be uh, in that class. But uh, the bottom line was, I was one of those pupils that was in the middle. So in other words I wasn't a high achiever and I wasn't a low achiever. But I was uh, a bit of a passive learner, well that was the instruction I was given. And it was difficult to question things and wonder why things had actually been the way that they are because I wasn't in those two upper quartiles. So, what I've started to see is that, um, with the development of the internet and its introduction in 1991, I've seen a lot of information for the first time be available to young people, and for them to start looking at this information and starting to question why things are like the way that they are. And that's one of the great things that I see about EdTech, and that is, um, you know, I, I think EdTech's gonna bring back the why into education because of pupils will be able to go at home, start doing their own investigation, and they come back in and they see the teacher, and they're going to ask why certain things happen. The way that I learnt, as you can see there, was I was told what I should learn, rather than have the ability to uh, learn in this way, which is where we're heading at this point in time. Um, As content providers, as many of you are, and producers, uh, the educational app market is a very, very much in its infancy. And what we're seeing is that there's going to be a need for curation. And that is why I'm in this space. I think that uh, children, teachers and, and parents and also schools are going to need the support of a uh, tested and um, regulated marketplace because there's currently about 250,000 educational apps out there. And it's growing by about 2,000 a month. So just to give you uh, an idea uh, of the, uh, the magnitude of the space. As we all know, um, apps are nothing more but uh, a, a, a package of, of content, digitized content, that normally does a specific task. Um, in Josh's case, it's getting bigger and bigger with his app. But uh, that's where we really find ourselves. I'm going to really show you how I see the students in the class now. As you can see, this is what I would call their digital alphabet. And what they're doing here is they're spending a lot of time on A and G, which is in some way regulated, but it's not as regulated as it could be, particularly in relation to educational content. I want to now talk about the personal side, as I've just explained, was more about me and my education and seeing what the new generation are going to, how they're going to be educated. But for a lot of you there is a commercial angle to this and you need to really get a handle on how big it is going to be. So I'm just going to provide you with three or four slides of uh, some top line stats so that you can see what the market's like. Um, We can see that uh, there's currently over 2 billion registered users on smart devices, whether that's Um, mobile phones or tablets, and that is growing exponentially, as we all know. Um, But what is more important, this is a global phenomenon. And what we're seeing is that, as you can see, there's a huge amount of estimated downloads in the app market expected by 2017. Uh, Just to give you an idea of the, the speed of growth, it was 2008 that Apple set up the App Store with 500 apps. Within 18 months, they had 50 million users. Now, if you compare that to television, which took 15, uh, 13 years to get 50 million users, you can see the speed at which this stuff is moving. Um, you can also see from the slides uh, that there are really two predominant players in this space at the moment. I'm not disregarding Amazon or Microsoft, they're doing an excellent job. But between these two uh, big players, they've got 2.5 million applications currently in their store. Um, Now, of those 2.5 million applications, 250,000 or 10% are actually categorised as educational apps. Um, Now, the challenge with that is um, they're not actually created from an educational perspective, and that's where the educational app store comes in. We've used uh, teachers and academics to build out a rubric which allows uh, allows the teachers to come in and assess the applications from a educational perspective, not just being termed educational. Um, what we're seeing here is that in the app store, for example, education's the second most active app category. Now that's, uh, that's been quite a seismic change in the last couple of years, and that has to do with the introduction of uh, smartphones and devices into formal education. We're starting to also see that, um, although it's the second most popular category there, We're also seeing that it's the fourth most popular category in terms of revenue. And as you can see here, uh, I hope you're able to see this, you can start to see what proportion of that remaining 51% um, educational apps are taking. I'm forecasting within the next 18 months that it's probably going to be a one and a half to two billion pound, a two billion dollar market. And this isn't going to stop. This is going to continue growing and growing and growing. And it's all to do with, you know, obviously, the, the, um, the penetration of uh, mobile devices. Anyway, so um, m- moving on, uh, I, b- I was asked a little bit about how we assess applications. And um, well, I really think that the killer app is, um, is that of the educator, either the teacher or the parent. Um, we are dealing with technology, and technology has no emotional intelligence in it. It has an inability to talk back to you, although we are going there, Um, but we do need teachers in the classroom and we do need parents at home to help facilitate this this adoption of educational apps. It's very, very important. Um, At the educational app store, what, what we're doing is, first and foremost, any application that we assess, we take a look at the four C's. Um, which are fundamental, really, for uh, digital literacy, particularly the next generation that are coming through. Um, Once we've had a look at them from a performance perspective and looked at these four Cs, we then start going to look at them from a learning perspective, specifically against the national curricula, so that teachers are able to get supported in the classroom with apps that actually support attainment. So um, we have a two-pronged attack in regards to matching the application with the national curriculum, as you can see there. Um, So about the future, in conclusion, uh, as I said earlier, in 2008, 500 apps were in the educational... uh, Oh, sorry, in the app store. It's now uh, 1.5 million, and uh, this is growing exponentially. As you can imagine, it's... um, basically doubling virtually every year and it 's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger um, I think we 've seen the, the first wave of apps pass us um, that is people digitizing books people um, digitizing uh, game or taking games and then digitizing them but I think we 're going into an, another wave which is the most exciting two minutes yeah um, which is this is where we were with apps in the beginning uh, uh, just starting to get up and understand the whole premise of content. Um, but what we're seeing is a second wave, which are the apps like Josh was showing earlier. These include assessment, uh, 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 engagement, and the clear integration of the four Cs, um, which is going to give these people the digital skills that they're going to need in employment and when they go into the work, not just the workplace, but when they're competing um, globally in, um, in anything. Um, we're going to see, I believe, uh, formal education become a place of learning rather than teaching. And I think the, the ultimately the teacher is a professional learner, so they are best placed for this type of thing. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more parents involved, um, particularly in the child's education at home. Again, as I say, from a, a future employment perspective, they want to give the child the best uh, content and also the best... Um, Uh, advancement as they can as they progress uh, through life and then in summary i think what i'm saying here is it's all about now learning how to find filter and apply applications and this is what's coming thank you very much thank you
0: very much justin Uh, it was nice to pick up in the middle of uh, justin's talk there what i think is a delightfully provocative statement that the killer app of the 21st century remains to be the teacher, you know, and that's uh, for those of us that create educational content. I think that's quite a challenge and an interesting statement. Reflect on that. You might want to come back to it for the uh, questions at the end.
4: Ben. Uh, hi, I'm Ben Courtney. Um, I'm a game designer at Preloaded, which is an applied uh, game studio in London. So um, the studio overall makes stuff for kids and adults. We make um, medical games. Uh, we're looking at like, workplace training and lots of different applications of games. But I'm going to focus today, obviously, on the children's stuff that we do, um, and in particular, on some curriculum-based stuff that we're doing in the US for a company called Amplify. Uh, uh, this is just like a kind of overview of Preloaded, the kind of thing Preloaded does. I suppose they're there. To me, they're there. Um, Preloaded works for clients. So we've done work for a variety of different uh, media companies. Um, Amplify is the main focus of what I'm talking about today, who are an educational company in the United States who make stuff designed to the US core curriculum. And uh, Preloader has made a suite of games on a variety of subjects that are kind of sold by subscription at the moment and used in schools in the US, and some of which should be coming available on the app stores uh, in kind of commercial releases over the next year or so. Uh, So, this is a kind of Amplify. uh, What we've got here is like, to me, as a background, I'm a games designer, but I've also been an instructional designer. Uh, and although I've worked in entertainment and in education, educational games are what I really love. And uh, I approach them much the same that I would do if I were designing face-to-face courses or an online course. Uh, and then I really like to know what the learning outcomes are and what we're trying to teach. Uh, it can you know, sometimes it's about conveying information. Sometimes it's about getting people into mindset or letting them reach other kinds of more complicated conclusions on their own. But you can see we're hitting a bunch of different school subjects here, and I'll go through them in more detail. But first, I wanted to kind of point out that um, I think it was said earlier that lots of games that aren't explicitly designed to be educational are very educational. This isn't something new about games. This is something, when I was a kid, I learned a lot about uh, the Roman Empire from incredibly historically inaccurate films. Uh, And those uh, kind of excited a curiosity in me to find out about them. And I think maybe when I was like 17, I was really angry at those films. I was going like, what? That emperor didn't even live at the same time as that gladiator guy. But um, later on, I realized, wow, you actually provoked my interest. You gave me these beautiful pictures in my head, and you kind of just told me a little bit. And it like made me into somebody who now, in my 40s, really like, knows a lot about the Roman empire, which has really prepared me for the current economic climate. <laughs> um, So uh, again, this is kind of the subject of what I'm talking about today. Just a brief overview of some of the ways uh, that I think uh, games can really help with learning. I know this is the learning with apps, uh, learning by app session. I don't know how skeptical it would be whether you could learn by apps, but I guess my presentation is kind of saying, yes, you can learn from apps. Kids usually use apps to play games. You can learn from playing games, because I know tons of things, and I learned most of it from games at first, Uh, and also films and comics. So uh, games can do what I just talked about. Um, Assassin's Creed, I don't know if people know that game. It's mostly, it's half set in the 18th century, has a lot of uh, historical characters. It also has crazy conspiracies in the Illuminati, which are definitely not true, possibly. But um, it does make you think, oh, who's Napoleon? Let me look up who Napoleon is. Um, There's another thing you can do with games, which is kind of training a skill. And that's like, uh, it's very interesting to me. Like, I think it can be undervalued. Like, when I was studying for my driver's test here, if the quiz questions had been arranged as a game, I would have found it a lot easier to study for the test. I know that I can be construed as like chocolate covered broccoli or an extrinsic reward, but actually, like, I had to study all that stuff. I had to learn a bunch of stuff by rote, and I might as well have enjoyed myself and had it designed in a way that encouraged me to engage with it, with the very kind of compulsive engagement that you can get from a game. Um, and then the final way uh, that this is the thing that I'm actually really excited about, which is what could be called epistemic games. It's a David Williamson Schaefer term. Uh, which is about getting you to engage with a certain way of thinking. And this is a very old thing that goes back to the oldest kind of play. Like when you're a kid and you're playing a game, you tend to be like, all right, I'm a firefighter and you're like an orc or something. And you have to do the things that a firefighter would do, and they have to do what an orc would do. And you're basically putting rules on yourself so that you have to consider and think and learn about um, an epistemology, which is like a body of knowledge or how somebody other than you might perceive the world. And that can be very powerful in education. So first, I'm just going to look at a few examples of games that taught me stuff, and then some games that are popular now that are teaching people those things. And then we're going to look at one of the games that I'm very proud of that Preloaded does, and the way that we've picked areas of the curriculum and treated them in different ways with different mechanics and different approaches so that we can teach people things with games um, in a way that they'll enjoy. And I would hope in a way that they would seek out, uh, you know, not just being like, this is more fun than what we usually do in class but thinking, wow, this is a great game. Um, I personally don't really believe in the spectrum from fun to learning, because I've learned certain things in really fun ways, and I love learning. And uh, I, I, I really hope by designing some of these educational games that I will have less adults grow up thinking about the spectrum that goes from education to entertainment. Uh, so on the left here is Sid Meier's Pirates, which I played when I was a kid. That was a game that um, the gameplay, the mechanic, had very little to do with. Uh, the 18th century, it was mostly just sailing around and fighting and taking over things. But I remember I was trying for ages to get a letter of mark, because uh, then you could attack ships, and uh, that you'd know, like you be allowed to. like The English wouldn't come arrest you because you attacked a Spanish ship, because you like, had a letter of mark to attack the Spanish. And all of a sudden, I was learning tons of stuff about the 18th century and how the politics worked. And everything else I read about pirates of the 18th century, I sometimes think just spreads out from that. And it gave me this really, it opened a little door and kind of kindled my curiosity and gave me a point of reference, accurate or not, that has left me loving learning about that kind of thing. Um, And again, Assassin's Creed is a similar example. That's uh, Napoleon. Weirdly, he's also sitting in a chair. I want to make it clear that you don't have to be sitting in a chair. It doesn't have to be historical, but both those games are. So I'm hoping that right now, Assassin's Creed is inspiring lots of teenagers to think that like, the 18th century is really cool, and they're really interested in it, and they want to know who like, Napoleon was. Um, this is a game that I think does that, that Preloaded has made. Um, it's called Story Cards. Uh, one thing is just, I, when I came to the company, this was already here. The art style is absolutely beautiful, and I think you can't underestimate how much uh, just the quality of the work and the quality of the stories can be such a driver of engagement with games. I think sometimes when you get too far into just considering the educational aspect of it, you can forget that no one will engage with all that lovely education, all that lovely pedagogy, if it doesn't really like kindle their imagination and make them like, really want to get in with it, um, where they can find all your learning. Um, story cards is basically a card game. Again, the mechanic doesn't have much to do with writing. Um, it doesn't have that. I love Night Zookeeper. It seems amazing to me. Um, I like the way that it's a way of playing with actually writing. Uh, like all of our other Amplify games, this is for 8- to 12-year-olds. Uh, one thing that I like about that is I've also spent a lot of time doing preschool games, and the audience is a lot more sophisticated. You can be more clever with language, you can um, do a lot more interesting stuff with the rules, and you can make the games harder. But, um, so basically, story cards, I'm playing uh, an unrelated card game with lots of historical characters. It encourages me to read, and it's tied together in a world called lexica, where you go off and um, it encourages you to read ebooks as well. Uh, As the next example of kind of uh, practicing a skill, Word Invaders on the left, which I learned typing from, which can help you roughly estimate my age. Um, It just made you type a lot and try and type real fast. And the point of typing is to try and type faster and be accurate, so it's a really good way of training you. Um, Dragon Box Algebra, I don't know if anyone's seen that. Um, We featured that before on our Games With Purpose site where we kind of write little reviews. It tends to be various people around the company who love games, writing about educational games. Um, this is uh, Preloaded's offering. It's called Mlob Rule, sort of hard to pronounce. But Mlob Rule basically makes you add up fractions to complete, to make a whole. It has some nice story where it's set in a world called Fractopia that's divided and united and play a kind of battle game by adding fractions. And this game has made me better at adding fractions. Um, so it's quite good for mental maths and, again, for the 8 to 12-year-olds to have a reason to do a lot of operations that will eventually leave them able to perform a life skill with maths. Uh, finally, epistemic games, my absolute favorite kind of games. Oregon Trail on the left. I played in the public library a lot when I was a kid. It put you, you had to think like a pioneer going west. You're like, oh, they're trying to go far. Oh, now I have dysentery, but I'm miles from a hospital. Wish I'd stored more medicine. Um, also games like SimCity and that, which make you think like a city planner. This is the really open-ended game category. And you can see, it's a, to me, it's the most sophisticated way of engaging with learning. Because you don't just tell people, this is what city planners do. You go, here's a model of a city. Try and build a good city. And you're like, oh, don't put the waste disposal near the bakery. Um, this is an um, epistemic game that Preloaded has done, which makes you think like an ant colony. It's called Tyrant. And um, it's based off the cor- uh, Common Core curriculum around biogenetics and diversity. and has loads of incidental learning about leafcutter ants. And the basic mechanic is about sort of prioritizing defending your colony and gathering leaves and making you think about, all the different things that ants have to do. We're engaged in a really major update to it right now, which I'm really enjoying, where I'm learning a lot about ants. And it's telling you, you know, like you have to do various things. Finally, Science Museum, think like an engineer. You should go play it and you can download it on your phone as well. That's Rugged Rovers. Uh, Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. Um, Now, we've got four minutes left, um, so we can probably take one question. Could you say who you are and then... The...
1: Hi, uh, my name's Alex. Um, this is now, sorry. <laughs> um, I'll try to, to make this quick for four minutes. Um, I'm from a, a Arcus Animation 2D studio uh, from Newcastle. Um, I, uh, I've, I've worked with some educational platforms before um, and I know that there, there can be some sort of red tape when you um, when with the national curriculum stuff. So um, I was interested um, with the... Um, the Night Zookeeper. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about how that pitching process is? It some is it was it different for you? Changing your direction to I'm going to approach this in education national curriculum. This is the direction I want it to go. Did you come up to a lot of red tape, or was there something you had to change specifically for that? For that IP? Not
2: n- nothing specific. I mean, ultimately, what the, the evolution of Night Zookeeper was as a game that we felt had clear inherent educational benefits in the sense that you know kids are drawing and writing they're they're doing educational activities through night zookeeper and the evolution of adding the toolkit and taking children's writing and giving teachers the power to assess that writing against what are customizable curriculum objectives everything is It's fully customizable, so it's any curriculum around the world, or even if a teacher wanted to make specific objectives for their individual child, they can put that in as well. It it helps as a sale to schools. If you're selling directly to a school, we are empowering the teachers that are our fans and that understand that Night Zookeeper is good for their children to go to their head and say, it's not just a great game, we can prove that the children are doing writing and they're hitting these curriculum objectives, and I think that's the the accountability side that that the toolkit gives
0: for us. And Justin, with your uh, educational app store, is that one of the criteria that you deploy, the the relevance to the national curriculum?
3: Uh, It's become increasingly more important, yeah. Uh, What a lot of teachers are, now they're getting used to the technology. Some of them have had iPads in their classroom for at least a couple of years now. And what they're starting to find is the productivity suites have been very helpful in uh, organising the classroom. Um, But now they really need to uh, get down to what it is really about, which is personalisation of the learner, and that is finding applications that will help those learners obtain a better level Um, prior to having the tablet. You know, technology is just technology. We need to make sure that the content provision there supports development and makes for better levels of attainment. That's great. Thank you.
0: Um, I'd like you to join me in thanking the panel this afternoon.